The Cyber Briefing, a podcast from Lancaster University's Security and Protection Science. My name is Dr Claire Hardacre. I am a Senior Forensic Corpus Linguist and I work in the Linguistics and English Language Department at Lancaster University. We actually have an amazing array of reasons why we're interested in cyber, so I'm going to go over probably four key areas that we are very excited about. The first area that we're very excited about is authorship tasks. So for instance, you may have an online account that's producing very problematic content. So maybe they're producing terrorist type content or offensive content, but you have no idea who that person is. So if you gathered all of their posts, all of their content, can you build a profile of who that person is? Can you make an inference about their education, where they come from in the world, how old they potentially are? And you can build this from things like their dialect, their accent and so forth. On the other hand, you may have an account that's produced content and perhaps the police have a prime suspect, but of course the suspect is saying, that's not me, I would never produce content like that. So then you might want to compare texts that they've actually produced with this online content to try and determine, does this look like it may have been written by this person or not? Another really common problem that we have on the online forum is you may have an account that's publishing content 24 hours a day and there is no way that one person could be doing this. If it's multiple people, can you tell how many people are in control of that account? How many voices, how many authors are controlling that? Are you effectively working with a ring or a network of people? And if so, how many people? And a final issue that we're sort of interested in in the authorship realm is resolving identities across lots of different platforms. So you may have someone who is not just using Facebook, they're also using Twitter, maybe they're also using Instagram. Can you resolve their identity across these different platforms? Even if they've used different usernames, can you essentially sort of collaborate all of this information together and figure out this one person? The Cyber Briefing. So understanding whether or not you have multiple authors or profiling an author is a very complex task. You've got to take into account all kinds of factors. For instance, on different platforms, we write in different ways. If it's a different time of day, you may have someone who has perhaps spent a while at the pub and then come home and produced some content, which is different from how they tweet first thing in the morning. Uh, You may have someone who's in a really bad mood when they're producing that content. And this goes back to issues of credibility, which I'll talk about in a moment. So you have to factor in a lot of different details right down to what we call device intrusion. So someone sending content on a smartphone, for instance, let's say they have an iPhone and a little keyboard, might message in one way, but then when they get home and use their big keyboard at home, their big mechanical keyboard, they might message in quite a different way just because it's much easier to use that device. So we've got a lot of components that we have to factor in. We've got to be careful and nuanced. And we also have to think about the person producing the content as well. The Cyber Briefing, a podcast from Lancaster University's Security and Protection Science. A major issue that concerns a lot of security agencies, as you can imagine, is this issue of credibility and, of course, deception, the other side of the coin. So, for instance, let's say you've got this account and it's producing content and this account, maybe it says that it's Dr. Claire Hardacre and Dr. Claire Hardacre is going to go and do all these horrendous things. Is that the real person behind that account or is it someone who is perhaps, you know, offended or upset with Dr. Claire, with me, uh, who's decided to go online and emulate my identity? So the first one is the credibility of the identity. Can you match up the language that that person is using with what they are claiming to be? But the other issue to do with credibility is intention. So again, as I've said, we've got the uh, case of Paul Chambers, who tweeted a little unwisely that he was going to blow up Robin Hood Airport. 
But if you look at his tweets in context, what you actually find is that he was very frustrated, he was very annoyed, the airport was closing due to snow, he wanted to go and see his online girlfriend, um, and he tweeted this in temper. It was satire, it was a very poor joke, but it was a joke. And so what you want to be able to do, particularly the agencies, is they need to know when do we deploy resources? When is this a credible, serious threat, a serious issue, versus when is this just someone letting off steam, maybe cracking a very unwise joke, and it's not something you actually need to deal with. So having that ability, especially when you have so much content online pouring in all the time, being able to zoom into the signal and ignore all of the noise is a really critical task and it's not an easy one. And so that takes us on to issues of detecting offences online. And again, I'm just curious because when you come to a number of characters in, in, in text, for example, in, in a tweet, you're so limited. So therefore, the, you know, the kind of choices you've got, I guess, as, as a linguist to, to actually use those, how can you possibly tell if somebody is going to have a severe intent, you know, real intention to do bad things, or their grammar's just clumsy or they've just run out of characters? You know, it, you know is it something that can be assessed accurately? Detecting intent online, as you can imagine, is incredibly difficult. It's a really fraught area because what you're trying to do is create that link between online behaviour through to offline action. We have to be incredibly cautious. We have to take very careful and tentative steps. So it could be that you are looking at escalation of behaviour and you're comparing that with other proven past cases where you have had offline offences occur. It could be that you are predicting based on this person's broader profile where you bring in other subjects such as psychology, uh, there may be computer science, there may be background forensic computing evidence, and you're building an entire portfolio of evidence. So you're not just looking at the linguistics in isolation. So it's not an easy area to work in. It's challenging, but it is incredibly pressing and of course it's very exciting. The cyber briefing. One of the areas that we can look at, particularly in individual uh, accounts where we've got particular cases that we're focusing on is this issue of escalation, where you can go back through time looking at an individual's behaviours and you might find a pattern where it begins with, you know, I'm really annoyed about a particular circumstance and then it starts to become, oh my God, someone needs to do something about this. And then it escalates a bit more to, if this doesn't change, I'm going to do something about this. And then by the end, they are actively proposing a step or an action that they're going to take. And again, you might want to compare that with offline actions that have been carried out in the past by different individuals where you can control the variables as much as possible to see do you have parity across these different cases does this person look credible or is this just a case of sounding off online so it is really useful to look at some of the real world cases that have occurred in recent times so Gary Lineker is the case where he sent the tweet and you can go and look in the recent media reports for that if you'd like to um, and that has caused all kinds of uh, reaction and backlash across the political world but another interesting case as well is Britney Spears and whilst this isn't criminal or forensic in nature it does have this same relevance where for a while there, before the convenership for Britney Spears was ended, her Instagram account was posting pictures and they had captions on them, but there was a huge amount of dispute about whether or not she had control of her own account or if somebody was ghostwriting the captions pretending to be her. Her fans were arguing routinely that this was not her, this was not like her. And so we have these real world high profile cases that are occurring all the time that can help draw attention to these issues online of accounts being taken control of or behaviours escalating until they reach a critical point. One of the crucial areas that's of particular interest in this arena, as you can imagine, is offence detection. So there's a number of areas that this spans across. So one of them, as you can guess, is threat. So if someone, for instance, tweets something along the lines of, why does the Prime Minister still have kneecaps? A question that you might ask yourself is, is that a threat? 
or is that just someone wondering a question out loud? Because you have the very obvious cases. If someone says, I'm going to kill someone, it's it's so obvious. You don't really need a linguist or a psychologist for that kind of thing. That's something where you can sort of consider it. But if you have something that's much more grey area, much more nuanced, like why do they still have kneecaps? It's a bit more of a, you know, you have to debate this. You have to look at it in its broader context. So detecting threat isn't as easy as looking for the death threats. Again, you have to look for this pattern of behaviour, this escalation, this intent. Another area where we have this is in places where radicalization can occur, which can be in very surprising arenas. You, this sort of, the start towards radicalization doesn't necessarily occur where people just go onto extremist websites. It can occur in very unexpected places. So we found the beginnings of radicalization happening in, for instance, meditation forums and yoga forums where, you know, there's an openness to alternative medicines and alternative theories. And that's the tiny seeds where it can begin. That's not to suggest there's any problem with those places, but that's one of those places where you can drop those hints and you can sort of fish around and see if there are people who are susceptible to being lured further. Lots of people will, of course, be resistant to it, but you'll have those one or two people who then start to walk down that route. So as I said, you don't just end up on an extremist forum one day. You've you've taken a very long journey to get to that point. So kind of mapping how people are very gently drawn in, perhaps without realising through these linguistic persuasive devices, is really interesting. Another particularly interesting area is organisation. So if you have individuals effectively trying to bring together large groups, and we can look at the instance of, for instance, Donald Trump and his uh, tweets in the 6th of January incident, where there was a lot of argument that his tweets effectively not only organised but incited violence. Um, You have issues around this where you have particularly powerful, prominent voices who are catalysts for huge numbers of people suddenly acting in a particularly aggressive way. And how do you deal with that? What are your responses to this? Can you see if this is coming? Can you prevent it? Can you head it off? Something linguists find particularly fascinating is the spread of ideology. And one of the most sort of nefarious and powerful ways that this can occur is through picking up linguistic tropes or sort of linguistic shorthand. So one example that we might draw on is, for instance, the use of the phrase drive-by, the use of the word woke, uh, terms like snowflake and so forth. What's really interesting is about about these is they are sometimes imported from alternative cultures or from alternative backgrounds. Then they can be very quickly semantically loaded, often with negative uh, baggage, negative connotations, and effectively weaponized. So this is a really serious issue where particularly the word woke, which started out basically meaning be aware of social injustice, which I think everyone would generally say that's a great concept. We should be aware of social injustice. We should tackle this as much as possible. But it got co-opted and then it got given this very negative baggage where it was turned into this insult where if you're woke, you're a snowflake, you're a social justice warrior, you're a problem. You know, you're like a millennial. You're, You're some kind of problem who just cannot get on and, you know, get stuck in with life. And like you have too many issues. So watching how words can be imported, then weaponized and then turned against particularly vulnerable groups, especially online, that can happen so quickly. We can see how ideologies and uh, political thought spreads very, very quickly online. The Cyber Briefing, a podcast from Lancaster University's Security and Protection Science.
It would be easy to imagine that because of the internet that we all end up speaking very similarly. But one of the really fascinating areas about particularly the online environment is you do get the very rapid spread of ideas, but you also get the very rapid generation of ideas. So it's not so much that we all end up using the same terms. You know, I'm, I'm not walking around using the word woke, particularly, for instance, unless I'm giving interviews about the word. Um, but what we do is we get brand new terms that will rise very quickly to prominence. They'll carry a huge amount of baggage with them. They'll rock it across the internet and then they may die just as quickly or they sort of linger off into a half-life so the challenge in this area as you can imagine is that particularly we're working with absolutely enormous amounts of data anyway but that data is changing so quickly so that you could scoop up all of the online data today and tomorrow you're going to have substantial differences in it so what we learn today we need to be projecting forward into the future of cyber not just looking at what we know now but looking at what we think is going to happen as soon as possible Perhaps one of the most exciting things about Lancaster for me is that we have such a breadth of interdisciplinary expertise. And although we're all quite different in what we do, we all plug into this notion of cyber. So we've got people who are working in maths and stats who might be working on, for instance, change point detection. We've got people in linguistics who are working on speech science who might be looking into deep fakes. We've got people in psychology who are looking at uh, uh, radicalization. We've got basically people across the entire university in broadly different areas who are doing incredible cutting-edge research. The opportunities for collaboration between those different disciplines is really exciting and that I think is probably one of our core strengths that sets us a head and shoulders above a lot of the other competitors because we can draw on that strength and really produce those cutting-edge ideas and bring together that collaboration. That for me is probably our biggest selling point. Another area that's really interesting and exciting for linguistics is speech science. So we have forensic phoneticians and forensic speech scientists in the department. And particularly in the world of cyber, something that's a pressing concern is that lots of audio is effectively black box. So if you think about podcasts, for instance, it's just a black box of data to the computer. Um, voice notes on WhatsApp or voice notes on iMessage, things like this. So you might have people talking personally one-to-one -one, or you might have these broadcast uh, data files, but unless you have a Way of extracting the words from that content reliably it's just a black box of, of just you know data and this is a serious issue because you could have this content where you are organizing crime for instance where you have radicalization podcasts that are leading people along that road and then this is something that we really need to be able to get stuck into so we can get accurate transcripts accurate data analysis out of these and then you can imagine we then factor in issues like deep fakes where you appear to have a voice that is producing content but it is in fact synthesized so that takes us straight back to authorship analysis who produced this content so the whole area as you can imagine ties together feels like you're chasing a you know a bus that's disappearing around the corner because this huge <laughs> amount of of information that's out yeah. there and yet you're going to have to try and like you say analyze it check it verify it you yeah. know decide further action meanwhile a second bus has come on do you know what i mean it, it just seems like you're fighting a not a losing battle but you know an ever increasing amount of information the sheer torrents of information on the internet do make this an incredibly challenging area. So if you think just about how many tweets are sent every hour, how many minutes of YouTube videos are uploaded, how many podcasts are started every day, never mind new episodes added to them, how many emails are sent, how many voice notes are sent, how many texts, how many WhatsApps, the 
absolute mountains of data on a minute by minute basis makes this an incredibly challenging area. But because of that, the sheer amount of data also gives us amazing opportunities that we would otherwise never have. And from this, we also get really interesting developments such as technology like ChatGPT, um, the goods and the bads that that brings, it gives us the opportunity to create possible ways forward that would otherwise not be possible because we just didn't have the data to make them happen. From my perspective, if I have to look back over the sort of decade or more that I've been doing this research, perhaps one of the most substantial changes, of course we can talk about the technological changes, but there is sort of a continual stream, it's sort of a, you know, a rising curve of exponential growth, but probably one of the most important changes has been in the degree of naivety and sort of the trust in you know, it's it's the internet, it will be utopian, it's this frontier of good things, the average person will get a voice. I think the realisation that the opportunities it affords for good, at the same time this cuts both ways. It offers a lot of opportunities for the less good people out there who want to go off and do, you know, their things. And sort of getting people to recognise that yes, there are a lot of good people out there, but it takes very few bad people with skills to really undermine that entire operation. So if we think back to the early days of Twitter, for instance, when we we didn't even have the ability to report a tweet until actually quite recently when you look back on its timeline lots of websites that were built with no technology for blocking users there was a real sort of naive sense that actually things would be fine um, and even when you look at UK legislation the Communications Act of 2003 that's a very old Communications Act. Now it has a little section in there, Section 127, that kind of deals with online content, but this would have been written and drafted in the late 1990s, back before we had internet in every house, where internet was still quite special. So the, the ability for, say, policy to keep up, for the average individual to keep up, that early naivety, I think, has finally started to wear off, and we're realising that for all of the opportunities this presents us with, it presents opportunities for the other side as well, and we need to move fast. The Cyber Briefing, a podcast from Lancaster University's Security and